Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bringing On, broadcasting from WFHB radio station located in Bloomington, Indiana. We're a multiple award-winning show now in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening and Happy New Year as we kick off our first broadcast of 2020. I'm William Hosea. Before introducing tonight's guest, Clarence and I will attempt to set a contextual framework for our discussion. Discretion is defined as the power or right to decide or act according to one's own judgment. Although discretion is a key component to law enforcement, most discretionary decisions are based on misdemeanor or traffic enforcement. Now, prosecutorial discretion is the authority of an agency or officer to decide what charges to bring and how to pursue each case. A law enforcement officer who declines to pursue a case against a person has favorably exercised prosecutorial discretion. Typically, prosecutors base their initial charging decisions on the documents sent to them by the arresting police officers, usually called police or arrest reports. The police complete an arrest report soon after they make an arrest and then quickly forward that report to a prosecutor assigned to do case intake. And finally, prosecutors may legitimately consider any number of factors in making charging and plea bargaining decisions. These factors include the strength of the evidence, the likelihood of conviction, the interests of the victim in prosecution, and the cost and complexity of the prosecution and trial. And with that backdrop for tonight's conversation, it is our pleasure to introduce to our listeners Ms. Erica Oliphant, Monroe County Prosecutor. Her mission is to represent the people of Monroe County while seeking justice, promoting greater public safety, and assisting victims of crimes. She receives reports from law enforcement agencies and files criminal charges in appropriate cases. She vigorously prosecutes those who are guilty while ensuring that innocent individuals are not wrongly convicted or oppressed. And with that, Erica, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. We, we really appreciate it. And I, I like to start off with, uh, you just recently in November won an election. Uh, in November of 2018. Two, oh, 2018. So it's been a couple years. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, just um, what sparked that interest and that passion to pursue this type of criminal justice um, uh, journey? Sure. It's been a bit of a circuitous path. So I started out at IU in 99 in, in music school, and uh, after music school, I was a stagehand doing opera, ballet. I won't go into my entire life story, but... Um, 
I was I was working as a stagehand and noticing that a lot of my friends and, and folks I worked with were getting injured and that it was a, it was a very physical job and mm-hmm. I was like you know I really should be doing something different and so I explored my options decided to go to law school at that time uh, my ambition was to go into poverty law mm-hmm. and to that end I did internships while I was in law school at the Middleway House and at Indiana Legal Services and. Even toward the end of law school, I was convinced I was going to try to go down a legal aid path, and a friend of mine convinced me to do an internship in the prosecutor's office, and I thought, oh no, I don't think I want to have anything to do with criminal law. So I did an internship, Uh, I think they called it an externship actually, I'm not sure what the difference is (coughs) even today, but I I worked in Chris Gall's office uh, 2008, starting August 2008 through um, through the end of the school year in 2009. In the meantime, I also took some classes related to criminal law and procedure, constitutional law, and I ended up just really becoming enamored and intellectually fascinated with the constitutional law that's associated with uh, criminal law. And not to mention, I was working with some people who are very dedicated public servants who really are trying to do right every day. And that inspired me to uh, seek employment in Chris Gall's office once I got out of school. And I've been there ever since. Now, you were a deputy prosecutor at one time? I was, starting almost as soon as I got out of law school in 2009 Mm -hmm. uh, until I was elected and took office January of 2019. Okay. So that was your inaugural uh, job in the county prosecutor's office under Chris Gall? Yes. Wow, interesting. So let's say uh, you were answering a question from the man or woman on the street, and they ask you, uh, uh, what do you want to do as a prosecutor? How, how would you define your role as a, as a county prosecutor? What is it that you want people to know? It's a difficult question to ask because it is a very big job. There's a lot to it. But uh, my role is to serve as an advocate for the citizen of Monroe County uh, while also making sure that that justice is done. So to that end, I have a responsibility to hire ethical and responsible staff, make sure that they're adequately trained to do the job. Uh, I have 18 deputy prosecutors. We have 56 employees. That includes child support and adult protective services, as well as the traditional criminal law. Um, Working proactively with law enforcement, some other organizations in the community to uh, enhance public safety and quality of life for Monroe County. Uh, and, you know, make sure that we're holding offenders accountable while also serving the needs of our victims. You know, um, as you were sitting there elaborating on that, something came to mind that occurred maybe 25 or 20 years ago. Not, not that I didn't transgress the law or anything like that, but there was uh, a program where they invited um, a couple of individuals now, this was it was it was this is relevant, but it was very interesting from the O.J. Simpson trial. Oh, that is interesting. One was Chris Darden, who at the time uh, was prosecuting, and I believe it may have been Johnny Cochran, uh, 
or maybe not because that would have really gotten contentious. But I think there was someone else that was there. But it was a remark that Chris Darden made that uh, I have not forgotten. He said, you know, a lot of people think that um, one of the glorious jobs is being a defense attorney and getting to win the day and win the trial. And it was obvious he was still sort of lamenting the outcome of the trial. I mean, because it was obvious, because some of his statements were just kind of maybe over the top a little bit. But he said, he said, let me tell you something. If you really want the real juice, then you need to be a prosecutor. And we all sat back in our seats and our jaws dropped like, no, he didn't say that. But he was, he was serious saying that I have the power to do this, that, and the other. And he went on to elaborate and elaborate. And I was just thinking, wow, you know, one, there's some healing that really needs to go on here. And then secondly, wow, what if he's telling the truth? <laughs> I mean, this, this was Chris Darden. Chris Darden. And, you know, he was saying, I have the juice. You know, I can, you know, if if I were a corrupt prosecutor, he was careful to qualify a lot of that. You know, I could make your life miserable, whatever, whatever. And so I'm sitting there thinking, wow. Um, but then again, I was thinking, wow. You know, if if in fact there were grains of or kernels of truth to what he was saying, um, being a prosecutor is a, an awesome powerful role. And a little bit later in our conversation, we'll talk about that. But when you were younger coming up, was there maybe an event or maybe you saw a Perry Mason TV show or something? Or was there something that happened that just, you said, I want to do that. Do, do you even remember Perry Mason? All right, Mason? all right, all right, all right. Hold yeah, on. Actually. Okay, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Um, uh, what did, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Andy Griffin. He was Matlock. Matlock. Okay, did you see a Matlock episode? And you said, I want to be on the opposing side. No, you know, okay, you didn't see that. Well, you know where I'm going. Did something happen that that just sort of uh, propelled your interest into this field? So into criminal law specifically, it wasn't until I had the experience in the office and started being more exposed to the to the law. To be okay. an attorney generally honestly wasn't an aspiration until after I was done with my undergraduate degree and I started to think I'd really like to do something where I could help people. Um, you know, I've always been very studious, good student, knew I would have no problem getting into law school, uh, but felt like I should really be using my talents uh, for the better better of other people. And um, that's really how I got into the study of law generally. Uh, I have a friend I hired as a deputy prosecutor. For, she was working in another county, and uh, one of the interesting things that she said to me when I hired her is, you know, I was going to be a public defender. That's what I wanted to do when I went to law school. I wanted to help people, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And she worked on Terry Curry's campaign. Up, he was the prosecutor in Marion County, and he basically said, come work for me you can do a lot more good on our side. So it is a powerful role, but there's a lot that can be done. Mm -hmm. Because some, Absolutely. I read that some of your <coughs> charging recommendations or or not recommendations, but charging decrees um, are some said they are maybe unreviewable, almost 90% unreviewable. I mean, there are they cast in stone or can someone go back to say, no, this Clarence should not have been charged for X, Y, Z, whatever. 
So we have a lot of discretion to decide what is charged. I think the closest thing we have to review, um, well, two things. The the judge has to find probable cause for the issuance of, a, of a, an arrest warrant or to hold someone in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, if we don't get a plea agreement because we charged incorrectly, um, the jury's going to hold us accountable. So that's, mm. those are really the only forms of review that we have. And, and while on this road, can you explain, we read in the introduction a little bit about the, uh, the chronological steps towards appearing before a judge and perhaps a court trial. Can you start from an officer sees something or is called to investigate something and then makes an arrest and then from there, just what are the stages? Sure, I can try to get through that. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so every criminal case originates with an investigative report of some kind. Um, We don't do our own investigations in the prosecutor's office. So if somebody comes to us directly with a complaint, we refer them to a law enforcement agency such as Bloomington Police, Indiana State Police, Indiana University Police, Monroe County Sheriff, one of the the appropriate investigating officers. they can, you know, they can come into contact with people for a, a number of reasons. Either they were called, on that, like a 911 call or, or a non-emergency call, or um, they happen to witness an offense as they are out on patrol. Once they come into contact with someone, if they decide that they've committed a criminal offense, depending on the level of offense, they have two choices. They can make an arrest. Uh, well, they have a lot of discretion not to make an arrest or to, to take any action on it. Um, but if they decide that they're going to take action on it, they can make an arrest or they can issue a citation, which is um, they give them a court date to appear um, and they have to come later and, and appear in court. Um, if they're arrested, they're booked into the Monroe County Jail. Um, under the new pretrial release program, while they're in the Monroe County Jail, they are interviewed by uh, members of the probation department who uh, go through a validated risk assessment to determine um, what kind of conditions they might need um, as a condition of pretrial release. Most people facing nonviolent offenses especially are released without having to pay a cash bond. Now, if they're arrested over the weekend, that, that evaluation doesn't happen until Monday. Um, once they're in jail, they have uh, then, then a police report comes to our office. Uh, we have to have those chargings, charging decisions done and that paperwork filed relatively quickly. So um, if someone is arrested um, before 2 p.m. the previous day, we have to have our charging done by 10.30 for misdemeanors, 10.30 a.m. or um, closer to noon for felonies. So it's a pretty tight turnaround if you've got a really long <coughs> arrest list. Um, and those are those are deadlines that are set so that the clerk's office can process our paperwork and then the judges can hold what's called an initial hearing, commonly referred to as an arraignment, um, where people are given a chance to know what the charges are against them, um, what their constitutional rights are with regard to having an attorney, taking it to trial, those sorts of things. Uh, the initial hearing is where the pretrial release decision is made. A public defender is present. It's not necessarily the person that's going to represent that person in their case, but it's somebody there to represent them for the purposes of their pretrial release. A prosecutor's there, and then the judge makes a decision on what conditions they need as a condition of, re- of release. The judge can consider the risk 
assessment that was done by the probation department, and then they can also consider anything else that's relevant, such as the facts of the case. Can you explain a little more about risk assessment? Sure. So the risk assessment we use is called the Indiana Risk Assessment System Pretrial Assessment Tool, I think. It's a it's a state um, risk assessment tool. It's been modeled after some other um, some other states' tools. But basically, the idea it asks five questions, um, and it's meant to assess the risk that someone will fail to appear in court and answer the okay. charges against them, or commit a new offense while they are out on pretrial release during the pendency of the case. So. Um, the risk assessment is given and the, and the results are, are provided by the initial hearing. Uh, once somebody's gone through their initial hearing, there are pretrial conferences. There can be a few or there can be many, depending on how complicated the case is, discovery process, that kind of thing. Um, at the pretrial conferences, plea negotiations take place. Um, if plea negotiations are unfruitful, people can... Um, Defendants can decide that they want to plead guilty, just leave it to the court, or go to jury trial or bench trial. Can we go all the way back to the beginning, to that initial interaction with a police officer? Sure. Now, <clears throat> you know, um, we're just awash with uh, cell phones and, and video recordings, and I see a lot of them on Facebook. And there's always this question about police officers approaching individuals and asking uh, for their ID, and then there's some question of what am I? Are you detaining me? So if a police officer approached me, um, and for whatever reason, I don't know what his reason is, but let's say he doesn't tell me anything, am, am I required to uh, to show him my ID or consent to a search or what? What what am I obligated to do? It's complicated. I don't want yeah. to give legal advice on the air, but uh, an officer can approach anyone and and try to engage them in a consensual encounter. Um, you are not typically obligated to provide them with um, any kind of ID. You're never obligated to consent to a search, for sure. Um, or, your, or your vehicle. Yes, you're not you're not obligated to consent to a search of your vehicle or your person. Um, under any circumstances, but um, there are some circumstances if you're committing an infraction or an ordinance, yeah. then you do need to provide your license or your identification. Um, but if they're just curious and walk up to you and start talking to you, then you're not obligated to provide ID. But I, I'm always hesitant to give that advice because I, you may be committing an infraction or an ordinance that you're not aware mm. of, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Well, a lot of uh, defenses um, from individual individuals is, you know, it's been um, on minding my own business. Officer Hosea walked up and said, show me your ID. And I'm like, I wasn't doing that wrong. And so it's his word against the arresting officer's word. Uh, and then the arresting officer who knows the law can, you know, um, it's always been alleged, well, they, they've just trumped up these charges against me, whatever. But it's probably always safe to comply with an officer of the law. They are an officer of the court, and if something or some error or some infraction has been committed by the arresting officer, it's better to flush this out 
in a court of law as opposed to on the street. Um, it's their job. And we've had individuals come on from the state police department who have conducted workshops in area churches and area um, venues to talk about the title was how to survive a pullover. Um, and, and, and by one point, the, the participant even said that, you know, that arresting officer's desire is to go home safe and your desire is to go home safe. So the best route to get there is through compliance. But when you add other factors, like say if it's a little five weekend and you've had way too much to consume, you feel you're sober enough to walk a straight line, but that officer's saying, no, your judgment's way impaired. It's probably in the back of your mind, if you can remember, just comply <coughs> and uh, try to go through it. So again, I, I appreciate you not giving free legal advice. Uh, I mean, not free legal, but not giving <laughs> legal advice uh, over the air. Uh, but but okay, you're you're at the point now where a decision is made by the judge to um, extend an arrest warrant, or we're at the point of of ordering someone to come to court because I wanted to try to bring this up to the point where you're standing before the judge. Sure. So, um, so yeah, we can, sometimes a, pol a police officer will send us a request for an arrest warrant. They've got mm -hmm. probable cause to believe that an offense occurred, but for whatever reason they didn't, they haven't just arrested them. They do have power if it's a felony or if it was a misdemeanor committed in their presence mm -hmm. to just make an outright arrest. And then the judge determines probable cause later um but yeah so once they've either got an arrest warrant and then been picked up on that arrest warrant or um we have reviewed charges after a warrantless arrest they come in for their initial hearing and they're okay. before a judge for the first time and then if things warrant then trial date is set or depending on the plea agreements other sure. directions can be pursued we usually start with a pretrial conference about a month out from the initial hearing and at the pretrial conference uh, what happens is we make sure that the state state is required to give disclosures of what its evidence is defense is supposed to provide us with any witnesses and evidence that they plan to present so that's a process that's ongoing throughout the case if any new information comes in um, the parties are, are supposed to share it with each other and then plea offers are made, negotiations are had. It gets pretty complicated, huh? It can See, get. That, that's why I just stay home. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted, also wanted to ask, um, where does the county's diversion program play into the, the, the legal process? And, and we, we, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. So uh, there might be two things that you're thinking of when you think of diversion. Um, there has been a prosecutor-led diversion program in this county for many years, going back at least in, into Carl Salzman's administration. That long, huh? Yeah. And so I have inherited the pretrial diversion program. Um, that program is, uh, it's a prosecutor-led program, as I said. Um, before I took office, um, there were several misdemeanors that were eligible for the program, but no felonies. It is a statutory program. And so uh, the first thing I did in January of 2019 is I made a uh, first-time level six felony drug and paraphernalia possession eligible for pretrial diversion program. Level six. Um, level six felony drug or paraphernalia possession. Now, level six implies 
lowest it's the lowest level of felony. Okay. Yeah, sorry. And so the range of penalties for a level six felony, just to give you some perspective, is uh, 180 days to two and a half years of incarceration. Mm-hmm. Uh, fine of up to, I want to say $10,000, but don't quote me on that part. And the highest level of misdemeanor? Uh, class A misdemeanor uh, carries a range of penalties from zero to 365 days. So you can be sentenced with a misdemeanor. I mean, you. I mean, you could ultimately be sentenced to a new residence. You <laughs> could be. You could be. I would say it doesn't happen a lot okay. <laughs> here in Monroe County, at least. Because you hear misdemeanor, you think, oh, yeah, that's that's trivial. But uh, no, it's not not so trivial. Well, and there are honestly some pretty serious offenses that are that are Class A misdemeanors. Um, domestic battery, for example, oh, is a yes, Class absolutely. A misdemeanor. Um, operating while intoxicated can mm-hmm. be a Class C misdemeanor, which is the lowest level of misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. It has a range of penalties of zero to 60 days. So, Okay, word to the wise, don't, don't, break, the, don't break the law. Don't transgress. Too uh, late. Too late, okay. Um, well, well, thank you for leading us down that path because, you know, a lot of people, it's a mystery. And of course, the best advice is if you find yourself in this situation, take advantage of an attorney or, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, if, if you're not able to afford an attorney, one can be provided, um, you know, and don't go at it alone. Um, and don't try to be your own attorney, William. So I just pass that on. I did pretty good. Okay. <laughs> and she's like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I do want to talk about some more um, substantive things that we're seeing now in the news that cause a lot of people to cast uh, opinions on the whole legal process, um, usually negative. And it seems to be sort of reinforced with ultimate outcomes out of um, uh, grand jury trials versus, you know, other type of trials. But before we get into that, can you, that that just reminded me, grand jury versus a jury of your peers. What is the difference? So actually a grand jury happens earlier uh, at the charging stage. So we have an option to use grand juries in Indiana, but they are not required. And so here in Monroe County, we haven't used a grand jury in many years. They are expensive, time-consuming, and um, since we have statutory authority to charge by information with a prosecutor decision, we often don't use them. Um, a jury of your peers is what you're entitled to for the ultimate disposition of the case when you're um, d- determining guilt or innocence at the final stage of, of the case. Okay. If you're tuning in, uh, we are talking with Erica Oliphant. Monroe County prosecutor, and she has joined us today to help demystify uh, the prosecutorial process and shed some light on just um, uh, just what happens behind the scenes, uh, how one's rights are protected. And um, we thank her for coming on. But we're going to take a music break right now. You're listening to Bring It On here on your community radio station, WFHB Broadcasting from Bloomington, Indiana. Thank you. 
You just heard Justice's Groove by legendary jazz and fusion artist Stanley Clark. And we're back now with Miss Erica Oliphant. And I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correct. I think you're good enough. And for all you, <laughs> are you who's your basketball fans and, and those who are just wondering, you know, I know that name Oliphant. No relation. Okay. <laughs> She is a Monroe County prosecutor. Thanks uh, for joining us again tonight. I want to pick up some more. I, th- I think you had some more to share about the uh, the whole diversion process in the uh, court system. Well, I just wanted to uh, talk about some work that I've been doing to uh, work on a new diversion program. I've been a part of a group of stakeholders. It started with the Monroe County Opioid Advisory Committee. Um, but Centerstone and several other stakeholders, including police, a public defender, uh, harm reduction folks, have been working to develop a law enforcement-assisted diversion program. And that's based on uh, the original law enforcement-assisted diversion program started in Seattle, but there are now some programs in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Kentucky, and some other places. And so um, to that end, we recently received funding through the, at the Stride Coalition. It's a local coalition of various stakeholders that have been working on the opioid crisis. Um, a crisis diversion center is scheduled to open in the spring of this year, so f- probably the second quarter of the year. Uh, it will be operated by Centerstone, but there's going to be a multidisciplinary team that uh, staffs sort of the, the people that come into contact with it. But it's meant to be a facility, a safe place where people can go who are experiencing an acute mental health or substance use crisis, uh, somebody who is getting the attention of law enforcement and would normally end up in, in our jail. Um, this gives them a safe place to go where they will get a medical assessment to make sure they don't need to go to the hospital. And then they will be referred to services instead of going into jail. Um, so this is meant to divert people away from jail in the first place. So it's a, a pre-arrest, pre-booking diversion program. Um, in other communities where they have a law enforcement assisted diversion program, it's shown that um, people who participate in the program are 58% less likely to be rearrested than those who go through the traditional uh, criminal justice process. So there is some hope that that may uh, be of help for some folks who, who deal with these issues and, and keep some pressure off our jail and off our, our courts. So just like in the case of uh, any other arrest, police have broad discretion on who they would uh, uh, place into a diversion program or, or at least start that process, right? Yep. So what I, how I would respond to that is that there are written protocols of these are the folks that, that we want to have diverted into the crisis diversion center rather than into our jail. Um, the, the one thing that was a real draw for the, I don't know if you're familiar with Fayetteville, North Carolina, but they're a pretty conservative area. Uh, police weren't buying in until they found out it took them about three minutes to drop somebody off at the diversion center as opposed to several, <laughs> several minutes or hours to book somebody into jail. So it ends up being attractive to law enforcement yeah. to, do, to use the diversion program if they can. So. Now, you mentioned uh, opioids. Uh, And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the whole opioid crisis kind of drives this diversion program. 
uh, or at least it has a lot of influence in, in uh, implementing diversion programs. Am I right? I think that's correct, although okay. it's not lost on anybody that we have uh, potentially a bigger problem with methamphetamine here locally. Okay. And uh, alcohol is also a significant issue. But uh, uh, so does marijuana factor in there at all? I, w- I would think that marijuana might be a little heavy handed for it, but or it might be a little heavy handed for marijuana is what okay. I would say. But it probably is. It depends case by case. I think it would be an eligible offense. But, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot fewer. Well, significantly fewer marijuana cases than there used to be. And I think Clarence knows where I'm going with this because there is a huge disparity in, uh, when, when you talk about the number of uh, people of color who are arrested and, uh, because of marijuana and opioids and methamphetamines seem to affect uh, mostly the white population. Mm-hmm. So once there was an opioid crisis, then they uh, the powers that be decide, well, we want to help these people. But uh, as long as people are getting arrested for marijuana, it was just lock them up and charge them and lock them up. Uh, and and so it just, it kind of uh, leaves us to wonder uh, why why is it so unequal? You know, when one part of the population is affected uh, one way and the other population is affected and more favorably. Mm-hmm. You know, I I take your point. I think the opioid crisis really got going because people were dying, but it could be because of, you know, because of race and, and because now white folks and, and folks with privilege are, are being impacted for sure. Um, but opiates, <coughs> unlike any other substance, create a very acute um, overdose potential that, that really drew a lot of attention, mm-hmm. I think, to the issue. Maybe, well, some argue that marijuana is a gateway uh, drug, uh, to your point about opiates really impacting an individual. Um, you know, I, I think of, and I'll just say Scott County. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like almost in Indiana, it was like um, ground zero for a lot of the uh, high rise of opioids. And years, I mean, years before it was nationally front page news, uh, I, I'd stopped through Scott County. I was getting gas at a gas station. A van pulled up and on the side, it had this particular church's name and at the bottom, free needle exchange. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I even asked, I said, what? And he says, well, hey, we got a problem. Um, and you know, it's, that has tainted portions of our state. Every county I know is affected. It may not be something they want to tout, but they're affected. And then nationally, um, something as innocent as getting pain meds for for an accident you were in, legitimate accident, if mismanaged uh, by you or your provider or whatever, can turn into something where you're seeking. And then uh, from that, if that's totally cut off, then heroin becomes attractive, and then meth becomes, I mean, it just, it just snowballs. So, and getting back to how people are handled, I do know that in um, Monroe County, oh, maybe over 20 years ago, there was the drug court. 
And can you talk about the origins and the, the success of the drug court in Monroe County? Um, sure. I wasn't around 20 years ago when they started yeah. the uh, drug treatment. You were watching court. Matlock. Was, you, you were watching Matlock. I was Matlock, watching Matlock with Matlock my grandmother. Reruns and, <laughs> but um, from what you heard, well, <laughs> what can you tell us? What I can tell you is I joined the drug treatment court team in 2012 and served okay. as the prosecutor representative for five years, and. I, you know, I think we save lives with that program. Um, it is meant for folks who are high risk, high need, usually folks who have had multiple criminal cases, who've been very familiar. Some of them have been to the Department of Corrections before. Um, they've just been at it and at it and nothing else has worked. And so it's a, a nice um, alternative. It's, it's a very rigorous, highly supervised program. It's not easy. Uh, It's definitely not easy, but I do think it is a program that is proven to reduce recidivism. Our local statistics are if you've participated in the drug treatment court program, even if you have not been successful, if you've been terminated from the program, uh, recidivism rate is something like 11 to 17%, which is much lower than the average, which is more in the 30s. So it it's a good program. It's it's rigorous, uh, but I think the original model started in Florida somewhere and, and just started kind of taking off as a response to, to drug issues. Um, just for the record, you support decriminalization of marijuana, correct? I do. Okay. But as a county prosecutor, you made the decision to continue to charge people for small amounts of marijuana because... You said it requires legislative action to change the criminal code, right? Yes. Understandable, understandable. The county prosecutor in Indianapolis um, stopped pressing criminal charges for people with one ounce or less of marijuana. So if if you feel that it requires a change, uh, a legislative action, how were they able to, to make that decision to just stop? S- so he just decided he was going to do that. I I believe that he is doing that illegally. Mm. Uh, I, I am not free to ignore the constitutional and statutory framework that created the position of, prosecutor, of prosecutor. I think once you have a prosecutor who decides which laws they're going to pursue, corruption is soon to follow. Um, you know, I do have a great deal of discretion, and I think that may be one reason why nothing is happening in terms of negative action uh, for, for his decision to do that. But um, I, I just think that's a really slippery slope. I think prosecutors mm-hmm. could say, you know, I'm not going to prosecute domestic violence because those cases are very difficult to prove, and we never really know who's telling the truth. You so know? if he so can do that, That's not my position. I just want to be very clear. That's, I don't <laughs> believe that. But <laughs> just an example. So if he if he could make that decision, then what what other laws can he ignore? That's basically is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then that could be misconstrued easily. <coughs> well, the percentages or stats related to people who are charged again, getting back to people who are minorities, if all of a sudden charges are brought against them for that, well, wait, well, wait a minute. In this case, you didn't do that, but now in this case, you do. And where does it stop? Uh, I yeah. think it's a very high char- highly charged thing. Should that be something that should be legislated or, or brought to the attention of the legislators to pass a law? Yeah, I, I'm really 
somewhat hopeful, but I think if any good is to come from that action, it's that it has seemed to bring the conversation about decriminalization of marijuana to the forefront. And so um, I definitely sent, uh, you know, I, I called IPAC and, and was like, what are, what are you guys going to do about this? Like, this isn't the way to do it. But clearly there are prosecutors that think that this is not something we should be spending our time and resources on. Um, you know, I've also talked to some folks who are running for Senate here in Indiana in the hopes that, you know, we'll, we'll have some folks who are more amenable to decriminalization of marijuana going forward. But, um, you know, I do have a lot of discretion. We've talked a lot about discretion in this uh, in this hour, but um, to the way that I handle the cases, um, most of them go through our, our pretrial diversion program. Um, I think we've had, in 2019, 14 convictions for possession of marijuana. Um, Small amounts. Yeah. But um, 70% of our cases have gone through diversion in last there, year. In your discretion, do you ascertain whether or not this is for personal use or for distribution before you bring charges? So I'm speaking only of possession. I mean, sometimes that's difficult to know, but um, we assume, I think, most of the time that it's for personal use. I don't think um, we're talking about distribution much. So my trunk is brim brimming with leaves and all types of things. This is for my personal use officer, <gasps> you know. <laughs> but then there are issues of medical use and medical need, as and now that's being broadened uh, to include um, stress relievers or whatever. You know, it's a whole gamut. Um, our president, again, we invoked his name in a show, William. I need a quarter jar. But our president <laughs> said that vaping, initially he said vaping should be outlawed or whatever. And then, no, 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 just just the, the fruit flavor that appeals to the youth. Now there's retrenchment from that. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee perhaps legislation or a law which um, really clamps down on vaping? Well, we just raised the uh, legal age for tobacco to 21 here in Indiana, which a lot of people don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> so all these convenience stores are supposed to ask and supposed to card. Yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, you know, I do think that vaping has been on the on the forefront of, of a lot of legislators' minds. Um, you know, you hear those, those stories about catastrophic death related to vaping but yeah i i think it's going to be a little topic for a while vaping uh, seems to kill a lot faster than cigarettes you know yeah it's not regulated i mean yeah well my opinion is no one knows what's in it mm-hmm. uh, and then they and then people get it and then add to it <laughs> so mm-hmm. well i i remember oh it was probably five years ago uh i was at some forum and somebody came up to me and said, hey, I just want you to know as a prosecutor that high schoolers are putting drugs in, the, in their vape pens, like they're using um, drugs because it's it, it tends to mask the odor of, say, marijuana. But I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't, you know. Do you do presentations at schools? Um, I have not yet, although it's something that I'm very interested in learning learning about how I can work with schools to um, increase graduation rates mm-hmm. and sort mm-hmm. of stop, you, you know, the prison, the sorry, school to prison pop- 
pipeline. Yeah. Done some reading on that, and you know, I think that education is so important for mm-hmm. folks to be successful in life, and so it is an area that I'd like to get more into in the in the coming years. How do you feel about uh, school resource officers? I haven't put a lot of feel- thought into how I feel about them. Um, I understand that it seems that m- police action is is coming more in, into the schools. I don't think the school resource officers are acting as police here locally in Monroe County, mm-hmm. but are rather calling law enforcement in when they notice something. Um, but, you know, you also see those videos nationwide where you see officers slamming kids on the ground and stuff like that. And I, I don't think that use of force for kids is is ever going to be okay. I, I agree. Um, I think getting in the school at an early age and just educating really in, at the, um, well, at the um, primary grade levels, um, first through sixth, just introducing, acquainting young students with all right, this officer or this, this is my role in the judicial system. Um, it's our job to keep you safe. And, you know, we see uses of drugs going down to lower grade levels, and, and that's frightening because uh, that doesn't bode well for a future picture of uh, productive citizens if they're not yet making it to graduation. And, you know, you talk about the pipeline. There have been studies that, that have said that even as, as young as third grade estimates based on third grade, um, if they persevere beyond third grade to fourth or not, then they can base how many cells, jail cells will be needed, how many right. prison right. prison cells will be needed. And and many have, have uh, you know, spotted that particular either a, a, a strategy or maybe it's just urban legend, but I think there's been some, some hard study to, to bear that out. That is uh, a product of for-profit prisons. Yeah. You know, they do those studies to, to increase their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, once they identify a trend that's going to put more money in their accounts, then they go for it. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question a local question. I think uh, you do have some stats that that you, that uh, that are available to you in the prosecutor's office. So I wanted to ask uh, when you talk about the number of offenses uh, and arrests here in, let's say, just say Monroe County, what's the difference between the college population and the general population, as as best as you can tell? I don't, I didn't, you know, it's funny. I looked at some stats because I knew you'd ask me some questions, but I didn't think to compare college population to local population. Educated guess. Uh, you know, my, my, my gut and my anecdotal feeling is that um, we get a lot of misdemeanors out of the university. Um, we get a lot of possession of drugs out of the university. We get sexual assaults out of the university. Um most of our other violent crime is in the rest of the county, the city and the rest of the county. Um, yeah, I would say most of our cases come from, from in the county. But Well, with five minutes, 
uh, left in our conversation. Again, we want to uh, thank you, um, Ms. Oliphant, who's Monroe County Prosecutor, for joining us. Um, if in a perfect society um, where the message is getting out about don't do crime or whatever, you know, what type of things would you want our listeners to bear in mind uh, as, as good citizens of uh, Bloomington and Monroe County? And you have five minutes to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can come up with another one or two questions. Yeah. There's a, it's, a, uh, it's a tough question. So, um, you know, I think that it's important to bear in mind that uh, that my ultimate goal is community safety. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always mean throwing the book at somebody and, and putting them in prison. And I, I hope that that comes through in how I talk about the job and um, how I run the office. But, uh, you know, I think everybody has that idea or or even maybe an experience of incarceration is is our ultimate goal. And that's not that's not our goal. Our goal is to enhance public safety through um, getting to the root of the problem when we can. So, um, you know, sometimes that means if somebody keeps coming back with a driver's license case over and over and over, it means we do what we can to help them get their license valid or to find some way for them to be able to get around. Um, You know, if someone's coming in over and over on a intoxication or a drug charge, we try to get them some treatment, try to get them in a a situation where they're not going to be, you know, back in the criminal justice system. That's really what we're trying to do with programs like the drug court and the upcoming law enforcement assisted diversion. We're trying to save people's lives, um, you know, in more ways than one. Sometimes it, it, you know, you might be living, but it's not no kind of life. And so if we can help people reclaim some, some happiness and, and productivity, then that's a good thing too. So, um, you know, we are not conviction driven in the Monroe County Prosecutor's Office. We are driven by um, reducing recidivism and trying to problem solve cases. You, you've been in office uh, a little over a year now. That's right. Okay. And uh, relatively young. Uh, I won't say your age, but let's just say under 40 when you got elected, right? That's right. <laughs> and I know that you worked uh, as a... Uh, deputy prosecutor for some time before being elected and you won handily um so since you've been in the office uh were there any has anything surprised you yet in any maybe any uh significant challenges either yeah that that you didn't anticipate or or something positive too she might say this interview i don't know no (laughs) Um, you know, I think probably the most surprising thing is um, honestly the human the human aspect of the job within the office, just trying to um, manage professionals who uh, in in some circumstances were my mentor, had been my supervisor previously. Um, but even if they haven't, they're all, very intelligent professionals who have long backgrounds and just managing the people has Mm -hmm. been um, surprisingly challenging, but 
I will say that um, I have a really great team and I believe in everybody who works in my office or they wouldn't work there. And uh, I think I'm getting better at it <laughs> every day. But that was really difficult in the beginning. Because um, managing people is not a legal skill, right? <laughs> it's not. And it was a big role change, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. There's a very big difference between being in court every day and advocating your position on a case and then trying to hire, manage, and, um, you know, problem solve for a group of employees, so mm -hmm. staff. So that's uh, it's been the biggest change, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. With about 90 seconds left, I've saved the biggest question for last. We're going to project five years down the road. Will we possibly address you as Judge, Judge Oliphant? Uh, definitely not in five years. I'm hopeful you'll still be addressing me as prosecuting attorney Oliphant. <laughs> I was hoping you, you have a, uh, we could scoop a, a, a news breaking uh, bit of no uh, news breaking story. You know, I look at the presidential candidates and some have come from the ranks of being prosecutor. Mm -hmm. uh, Kamala Harris was one um, who did admirably well. And, Amy uh, Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar, and and may we look at back at you one year as we're, as we're eating popcorn, watching the debates, and saying, "Hey, we interviewed her." And on that note, <laughs> here's what I'll say: I've never had that ambition, but then I didn't really have this one until I got here. So. Yeah, see, now now you're sounding like Hillary Clinton. You know, I, I said I wouldn't run, but a lot of my friends have been calling. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we really have enjoyed having you on tonight. And at this point, um, I think, William, you're supposed to thank our guests. Um, yes, I am. And I will do exactly that. Um, we want to thank Ms. Erica Oliphant, Monroe County Prosecutor, for joining us this evening. Her mission is to represent the people of Monroe County while seeking justice, promoting greater public safety, and assisting victims of crimes. And if she runs for public office at a higher level, you heard it here first. All right, Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB's News Department Director, Cade Young. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontante. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, January the 13th, almost midway through at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.